I wanted to start off with a fairly broad look at Kubrick and his relationship to the science fiction genre and talk about how Kubrick offers us three different visions of the future in what some people have identified as his science fiction trilogy, uh, being Dr. Strangelove, 2001, A Space Odyssey, and A Clockwork Orange. Now, 2001 is the most obvious candidate as a science fiction film, and you may not see Dr. Strangelove necessarily immediately as a science fiction film or a clockwork orange for that matter. If we borrow a definition from a literary scholar, Theodore Sturgeon, the way that he defined good science fiction was that it's a story with a human problem and a human solution, which wouldn't have happened at all if it weren't for the science aspect of the story. So in that regard, we can think about Dr. Strangelove and A Clockwork Orange, at least as having some science fiction elements in them. And I also want to think about the three films as a kind of trilogy, because I think Kubrick invites us to think of them as being connected. And uh, many of you have probably noticed this if you're fans of the films. So think about the way that uh, Dr. Strangelove ends with a series of nuclear blasts looking for all the world like a series of sunsets. And then we have the, the ironic use of the Vera Lynn song, We'll Meet Again Some Sunny Day. Well, the next time that we do meet Kubrick is in fact on some sunny day at the dawn of man in 2001, A Space Odyssey. Now this seems to me a very deliberate connection of 2001 to the previous film. We have the series of sunsets, as it were, the sunset of humanity, the end of humanity, at the end of Dr. Strangelove <laughs> with the nuclear war. Uh, so now we're going to the beginning of humanity, the dawn of man in 2001. Now think about the end of 2001 and the beginning of A Clockwork Orange. We have this amazingly hopeful image of the star child in 2001, and I wanna talk more about that in just a couple of minutes. And then Kubrick begins his next film, uh, Clockwork Orange, with, which is a much darker film with this image of Alex uh, introducing us to this dystopian future that is uh, much more problematic than the very hopeful, optimistic ending of 2001. Now, these three films offer, again, three different visions of the future, and they tie into a couple of different tropes that we find in science fiction stories as identified by the literary scholar Judith Merrill, who talked about two different sort of subsets of science fiction narratives. On the one hand, you have the uh, sort of what she called the preaching story, uh, stories or films that tend to warn us or prophesy against negative outcomes, especially with regard to technology. And I would classify both Dr. Strangelove and A Clockwork Orange in this camp. So Strangelove is warning, obviously, about the dangers of nuclear war, which was a major concern of Kubrick's. A Clockwork Orange is warning about the misuse of science uh, in the way that the treatments are used on Alex to strip him of his humanity. But these films also warn of a deeper problem, and that is the potential return of fascism. Uh, Kubrick was very much uh, concerned about this as well, and he said that, you know, too often we don't really learn from history, and if fascism ever returns, it's not going to look exactly the same way that it did before. So Strangelove, I think, is a pretty clear warning that, that we may usher in a new age of fascism, and uh, you really can't miss the, uh, 
the connections there with the Dr. Strangelov character as a former Nazi scientist who's now working for the Americans, but he can't quite shed that Nazi identity. Clockwork Orange also has quite a bit of Nazi imagery in it, uh, in the films that Alex is watching, but also in the prison guard with the Hitler mustache and the goose stepping and all that sort of thing. And so Clockwork Orange is also warning us against the uh, stripping away of humanity for the sake of a kind of law and order society where authority really rules over everything and morality is sort of thrown out the window. So the, these are some of the warnings that Kubrick is offering in, in these darker science fiction films. Now, uh, 2001, I think, is more of what Judith Merrill would call a teaching story. That is a story that's trying to popularize science and technology. So it's very much a part of the zeitgeist in 1968, where the whole country is very excited about the Apollo program and the possibilities of space travel in the future. So you get the little details in the film, like the grip shoes and seeing how the astronauts are eating the food through the tubes and all that sort of thing, just trying to imagine what space travel might actually be like and what artificial intelligence might actually be like in the future. And so this is going to inform, I think, a lot of the other discussions tonight. But 2001 is, a, is a, on a deeper level a different kind of teaching story as well. I think it's a film that invites us to think in philosophical terms. And many of Kubrick's films, I think almost all of them, have philosophical dimensions. Uh, they're not necessarily trying to transmit to us Kubrick's philosophy although we can tease that out, perhaps, if we really look closely from film to film, but rather they're trying to get us to think philosophically and to ask ourselves philosophical questions. Uh, and 2001 asks the biggest questions that there are. What, what is the nature of humanity? What is our place in the universe? I mean, we're, that, isn't that what we're all trying to figure out? And here, to me, it's, it's just so astonishing and audacious that a filmmaker would take on uh, a topic so huge and try to deal with that in two and a half hours. So he's not offering any answers to that, but I think he's encouraging us, the film is encouraging us to think on that kind of philosophical level. And so what it's really trying to do as ultimately a, a kind of teaching story is to raise our level of consciousness to uh, sort of shake us out of our everyday reality and get us to interact with this tremendous work of art and somehow come out of it transformed or aware on some level of a higher level of thinking, a higher level of awareness, a higher level of consciousness. And I want to talk about just a couple of moments in the film, a couple of ways that it does that. This transition about 25 minutes into the film from the prehistoric ape sequence to uh, orbiting the Earth, um, this transition, this cut from the bone to the satellite, to me, is, is one of the most astonishing moments in film history. I think it's probably the single greatest edit in any film ever because it's doing everything that you can possibly do with editing. It's taking us to a completely different time and space from prehistoric Africa to the future in orbit around the Earth. And this transition happens on, on the, 
this moment of triumph as the ape throws the bone up into the air and a kind of reaching out to the universe and to that thing out there, whatever it was that enabled the apes to, to use the tool in the first place. So there's this triumphant gesture upward and outward, this connecting to the, the, the universe. And then in that moment, Kubrick takes us out there into the future and into orbit. And it's just an astonishing emotional moment. So that you get this tremendous shift in time and space, but because of the graphic match between the bone and the, and the satellite, we're also invited to think about the connection of both simply being tools. And so everything that we've seen in that first 25 minutes in terms of how the apes use tools this will inform the way that we're reading the rest of the film in terms of this future technology and how it will be used. And so many people have talked about the double-edged sword of technology, right? We depend upon technology for our very survival as the apes depended on, on the use of the tool, the, the bone, for their survival. But the bone can then be turned on the other tribe of apes. So the bone can be used for survival. It can also be used to kill. So this is an idea that Kubrick is going to take through the rest of the film in terms of how uh, technology, how, how tools are used. And uh, so in that way, 2001 has elements of the preaching story as well, that we have to be really careful how we use this technology, that we not give it too much power and too much control. Uh, so all of that, to me, all of that comes from this single edit. It, it really invites us to think philosophically about what is our relationship to our technology and uh, how we use it and, and how it's going to inform our future. You know, there's this comparison between the, the apes in the beginning and the conflict between Dr. Floyd and the Russian scientists. And Kubrick, again, through a, a very neat little graphic connection, invites us to compare the two scenarios. The apes are warring over access to this watering hole. In the future, the conflict is a little more civilized, but still very antagonistic. So uh, here, it's very jealously guarded information. <laughs> so the war is over water in the prehistoric times, but uh, in the future, its information is going to be the thing. One other thing I want to talk about uh, very briefly is the monolith. And I think we can pretty clearly see throughout the film that it's, it's used to indicate a kind of doorway, uh, an evolutionary doorway, as it were. So uh, leading the characters from one stage to another to another. But here, near the end of the film, Kubrick invites us to see the uh, monolith in a horizontal orientation, which reminds us that it's also the shape of the film screen. And I think that this film is ultimately doing for us what the monolith does uh, for Bowman, and that is take us to a new level of consciousness. And I think I had better stop there, and maybe we'll have a nice discussion afterwards. Thank you very much. The first thing I want to do is actually give a shout out to my brother who's in the audience, Richard Castrillon. And I say that because it's only in relationship that we get many of our ideas. And in constant conversation with him during a retrospective of Kubrick's films back in 2000, I believe, that I came up with this idea and then gave this, what I thought at the time was a brilliant 
sort of rendition of the film that nobody else had captured. And he was like, oh yeah, oh, that's really good. It was his encouragement that brings this to you. The presentation I'm going to do and the comments that I have are similar in scope to what Rodney spoke to, and I'm going to focus on 2001. I'm viewing the film as an allegory, and I'm going to note how Kubrick's vision in the film follows the development of machine and human interaction to the point where the machine, in this case Hal, is able to escape the realm of human governance by killing the three hibernating astronauts and ejecting Frank Poole and Dave Bowman from the ship, thereby raising the possibility of an uh, AI-driven colonization of the cosmos. Now, as I'll point out, this dark possibility is avoided by Dave Bowman. By his killing of the machine, it's more his dismantling of the higher functions of, of Hal towards the end of the film, and choosing instead to engage with the monolith on his or its own terms. There is a critique of the machine in here, but there's a critique more so of our engagement with machines on an ongoing basis. And here I'm speaking of everybody with their iPhones, everybody with their smartphones. I looked around the room and I saw how many people were doing it and feeling my anxiety, like I wanna go and I wanna check my email too. But it's that engagement between humans and machines that I think that Kubrick caught onto very early on and wanted to speak to. So the movie is an allegory. For me, the menace of the machine is that it takes instrumental rationality, that sort of calculative rationality, that sort of if-then way of thinking that is so present in hypercapitalist modernity, but leaves the emotional and ethical considerations of culture and prohibitions behind, the very things that keep us from simply existing in some sort of instrumental rationality way of being. We witness this menace with a constant focus on Hal's lens, especially as he's killing the humans on board and Frank Poole outside. So if you watch the movie again, you'll notice as Hal is killing people off, the focus is on it. And it's this cold, menacing sort of evil, as it were. It's not an active threat, but the calculations of a machine with no appeal to morals human emotions or ethical principles. And what gets me now is that in our time of violence, I wonder if this kind of thinking on the part of Kubrick speaks to something important. Does the current uptick in violence correspond to our own machinification and our own embodiment of instrumental rationality, bereft as is the robot of ethical principles, emotions, etc. So what I'm saying again is that it's, it's an allegorical tale about human-machine interaction and the colonization of the cosmos by digital machines, right? Now, this might seem quite fanciful, but as others on the panel when we were having sort of, you know, conversations online pointed out, oh no, there's been quite advanced thinking about this kind of thing. So I'm glad I'm not the only, you know, bearer of bad news. So this dark possibility is avoided by Dave Bowman's killing of the machine and his choosing to engage with the Molinith on his or its own terms. Again, as you're watching the movie, as he's killing off, doing kind of these nefarious evil things, I mean, we are anthropomorphizing on him and thinking that we're attributing some sort of evil to Hal, but for the person who's being killed, they're experiencing it as being killed. They're not experiencing it as anything else. 
I'm focusing on a very particular sequence. To make a long story short, there's some sort of malfunction to a unit that's the satellite sort of transmission and receiving end on the ship. They go out to investigate. They realize that there's nothing wrong with it, and so they come back, and Frank Poole and Dave Bowman are thinking, well, what's going on? Because HAL has never had, right, that's never had any error, factual error, even in the slightest. So they're like, what's going on? So they decide then to go and reinstall this unit that was the supposedly faulty. But as that happens, Hal kills Frank Poole. Bowman, Dave Bowman, goes out there to try to rescue him, but then is not allowed on board by Hal. Of course, Dave Bowman comes into the ship, and as he enters the ship, he goes into the Hal sort of mainframe and, des and dismantles his higher functions. And there we see it. Okay. But how could something like the colonization of the cosmos happen by digital machines? So as the movie shows over time, the discursive dialectic between humans and machines may produce breakaway machinic assemblages. So when you're interacting with your iPhone, right, there is all this theorization, and you can see it. Like, have you noticed that when you're texting, you've texted certain words, and the AI will remember those? They're specific and singular to you, but they'll pop up. Right? And you might try to text on somebody else's phone and it doesn't come through. The AI is learning. Right? So a series of heuristic devices are actually migrating to the machines. What I'm saying is that in these type of digital assemblages, enough human characteristics have migrated to the machines to allow them to disconnect and operate independently from humans. These advanced machinic assemblages disconnect from humans through enacting a sort of escape velocity. This is an idea from Paul Virilio, a French theorist who's thought about these sort of things a lot, and allows the machines to leave the orbit of human governance. In this case, in the case with 2001, Hal tries to kill everybody off. Sadly enough, there is evidence that we're on the verge of this becoming a reality. I thought, okay, this is way off. But then I looked on this website. You can look up, it's called nightscope.com. And it gives you information on this, this entity called Nightscope K5 Autonomous Data Machine, which is a friendly crime-fighting robot. Now, what's interesting, it is completely de-linked from the police department. It operates on its own. Here's the first hell. And it's happening now, in our time. Having enacted this escape velocity, these assemblages are then able to colonize the Earth and even the cosmos. As a fellow member, Chris on the panel told me about is, well, this is called a von Neumann probe, right? So others have thought about this. Von Neumann probes are self-replicating, colonizing machines that go across the galaxy. Now in Kubrick's rendition, and this is the main point I want to get to, and it's kind of a warning, I think, on the part of Kubrick, and this is the way I took it when I saw the film, was that this scenario is narrowly avoided, but only because Dave Bowman essentially kills the machine. So my question to all of us is, is there a lesson about our possible futures in this allegory from Kubrick? Is our over-reliance on digital machines, but more so our engagement with them and their ability to take on what are human characteristics, is that gonna lead to something? Now, emoticons are not the same thing as humans. Emoticons are not the same thing as human emotions. And what I'm getting to by saying that is that on digital platforms being that they're binary, they do not take on the other human characteristics that keeps our violence 
in check for the most part, right? Machines don't take that on. And I think when you look at the movie, what's most pertinent and prescient, in fact, is that Hal kills coldly. It's not a menace. There's an absence of sound. He's killing without remorse and without ethical principles. And I think that, in our time, speaks to the possibility that our own machinification as humans might actually be contributing to the kind of uptick in violence that we witnessed in just the last couple of months. So I shall end there. Thank you very much. All of us are fans of Kubrick in this room, let's presume. And it's a big filmography, but I've been invited on stage partially because I co-authored a book and I currently keep a blog that evaluates the computer interfaces that appear in science fiction television and movies as if they were real world interfaces for their usability and whatever issues rise up. Uh, and that gives me a break because that means that my authority really only extends over two of Kubrick's films, or if we listen to Judith Merrill, there's a possible third in there. But I only have 10 minutes to talk with you, so I had to narrow it down further. Um, and for that, since I'm writing the book on artificial intelligence, of course, I'm going to talk about how. Um, and specifically, I'm gonna narrow it down to a 10 minute frame by talking specifically about HAL as a conversational interface. So if you've heard the term conversational interface bandied around Silicon Valley recently, what folks are talking about is something very much like this. It is a way that you can use natural language to text a computer system that will then understand that language and send you a message back or it will prompt you for some information and you can use your natural language to reply. So this is what most people mean when they talk about conversational interfaces, and I mean to bring it up, only to say that that's not what I'm talking about. Um, for my money, that is pretty much no much better than MS-DOS, except it uses natural languages and has some pretty graphics to tell you who said what. When I think about conversational interfaces, I think the proper model is the face-to-face -face conversation, the interlocution, to use a giant word, um, between two people, like we might see, oh, between two characters in a film. So if we take a look at human conversation as the model that our conversational interfaces should aspire to, that gets deep really, really quick. I mean, it takes us down some fun roads, like classical semiotics, where we get to talk about the meanings of the words and the logical structures that we you know, put them into in order to make assertions. It also talks about the way that information and conversation is delivered, the pacing of a conversation, or the emphasis on a word, or even the way that a line might lift up near the end. All of these things in prosaics sort of help inform the conversation at hand. It even gets into some strange agreements that are implicit that happen before we even get into the conversation. Um, and a fellow by the name of Paul Grice actually captured them as the Gricean maxims, which you can look up, fascinating stuff. Um, but the weirdest and my most favorite is a, a section or an issue called paralinguistics, as you might be able to decipher from the title of this category. It is everything outside of the language that informs the conversation that's going on. Now, for our purposes of evaluating how, we get a break, because that's a lot of stuff. Um, but the top three are all in the language as it is spoken. And so if we're thinking about it from a design perspective, that's not the purview of an interaction designer. That's the purview of the programmer of the artificial intelligence, 
or the purview of the linguist, or even the purview of like a speech coach. But we're off the hook. We don't have to think about that when we talk about how, because that's going to be somebody else. It's the stuff at the bottom, the paralinguistics that come into play when we talk about interfaces. And I'm going to show you now a couple of examples of those interfaces and how they've helped solve that problem. Because when we talk about those bottom things, about the paralinguistics, if I had like a full hour, I could go through each one of those, proxemics, expression, uh, the back channel phatics, what the uh, Japanese call um, aizuchi, I think. Um, but we don't have that much time. So instead, what I want to talk about are the tactical questions that paralinguistics help us answer, and then later we'll talk about the strategic ones. So the tactical questions that paralinguistics help us answer are threefold, sorry, fourfold. The first is, is the person that I'm talking to listening to me? Are they paying attention or are they checking their email? The second is, can they hear me? Even if they're interested, if they're across a crowded gallery, they may not be able to receive the signal of my voice and I have to do something about that. A third is, um, do they understand? Are they giving me that squint eye and that sort of tilted head that tells me, oh, I need to back up and explain more? And lastly, of course, since we're passing conversation back and forth between us, whose turn is it to talk? Have I made my point and do I now need you to respond? So those are the questions that paralinguistics help us answer. And now I'll show you two examples of interfaces that actually do help answer those things. This is Android operating system. When you tell it by touching the little microphone icon that you want to talk, this is the screen that comes up. It's a little red dot, and it has this beautiful little animation where it kind of breathes as it waits for you, right? Uh, and Google, if you're in the room, the visual similarity to HAL has not been overlooked. <laughs> now, I don't own an Android phone. I own an iPhone, so the next screens are all about that. Siri, when you invoke Siri and say, hey, I have something I want to tell you, brings up this little rainbow spectrum at the bottom that sort of responds to the ambient sounds and lets you know, hey, I am listening. Go ahead and talk. Then after you, while you talk, that rainbow spectrum sort of bobs up and down. And then once you stop or press the button, it actually shows you what it thinks it heard. In this case, I told uh, Siri the title of my presentation, how as a conversational interface, and it misunderstood it as how as a conversational interface. But it even fessed up that it wasn't too confident in the first three words. It was like, we think this is right. And then, of course, the results that it gave also helped to contribute to me that here's what I understand of what you have said. So we have examples in the world, probably in your pocket right now, that interfaces can answer these questions. So now we have to turn these questions back on Hal and say, does Hal answer these questions? And the answer is no. Hal fails at these. Now we're in a room of Kubrick fans, so before you get the rope out, uh, let's talk a little bit. Because we have to ask the question, well, was Kubrick just a bad interface designer? Did he not know about these things? And the good answer is that no, he's a great interface designer. And all we have to do is look at the rest of the film. Because even as we approach 50 years old, these things still stand up. They're great. Uh, they're not perfect, and certainly they're missing some of our modern technological tropes. Um, but they are fantastic, and I can't wait to fully review them on the blog. If interfaces can talk about paralinguistics, and Kubrick is capable of doing good, uh, good uh, interface design, we now have to ask why. Which takes us to the strategic questions that paralinguistics helps us answer. And those are threefold. As we are talking to somebody, we have in the back of our head some things that we're tracking. The first two are, what are they thinking? 
And what are they feeling? Do they agree with what I am saying? Are they anxious about what I am saying? And if so, I need to do something about that. And then the third is, am I having the effect I want? Am I delivering bad news, but respectfully, so that I'm not exacerbating the problem? And interestingly, if you don't address the paralinguistics, and you don't address the tactical questions, you can't address these strategic questions. Why is Kubrick doing that? Well, it's because how, the truth about how, gets to hide behind this ambiguity, right? When presented with moral problems, we can't tell whether he's good or bad, we just know that he's kind of charming. He's soothing, he's calming, right? When presented with the uh, moral problems, we can't tell really how he feels about that, right? He, we can't tell his morality, even though, of course, the, the events of the film reveal it. And spoiler alert, when he commits sort of an incredibly violent act and is unremorseful about it, we don't have a telltale heart in the interface that tells us that he's nervous about this thing that he has done. It's just cold, it's just empty. And the only reason that this sort of becomes apparent to us is over his actions in the film because it's absent in the interface. Watch the film again with the mute button on and you'll see that Hal gives you no information in the paralinguistics. So by doing this, by constraining Hal as an interface, what he's actually done is he's painted a picture of a psychopath. And he's only done that in our periphery through the interface. And so, yes, 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 how fails as an interface, or rather, let me be specific, as a model for conversational interfaces in the world, but by painting a picture of a dark consequence, if we don't program artificial intelligence to care about humans, he's created fantastic science fiction. And that's what we're watching it for. Thank you. I'm really excited to think about Kubrick as an artist, as a conceptual artist. I do think that his work remains at an intersection where an artist would try to almost undo the very genre and the format that he or she is using. And when I say that, I'm thinking of Kubrick in the way that he actually takes the novel, which is an early modern interface in which you could try to collapse the entirety of human life trial and error, love and loss, and comedy possibly, into a machine of the book that you could read and no one would know what you were falling into, but you could actually travel, be transported, and hopefully in the earliest novels, the hope was that it would be a novel of manners, a way to live and a map for how to be a modern person. And so Kubrick takes these novels and then sublimates them into cinema and cinema is a way that we can, in a, in a way, rehearse stories and create kind of a special place where all the senses can be activated just through sound and image. But we can almost taste something, feel the rain, almost have the sense that we're falling through space, even though we're just watching a projection. With Kubrick's work, we have this ability to work at the intersection where all the genres kind of fall together and really leave us in a special place during his work, almost hovering between states. So my first image is just a black image. 
I wanted to call attention to the fact that often when we see films on a DVD or streaming, we forget the context in which the films were initially shown. And with Space Odyssey 2001, you have this incredible risk that he took in the beginning, similar to John Cage or any other conceptual artist who worked with sound and surprise and disappointment. Kubrick actually had about three minutes of the Strauss music, the tone poem, Thus Spake Zarathustra, which is sublimating Nietzsche's book from the 1880s into a 10-year-later tone poem that in a way maybe is more successful than Nietzsche's book. But it's about this idea that if God is dead, what else is there? For Kubrick to start his film with a totally black screen for three minutes with what sounds like almost an orchestra tuning itself and gradually coalescing into music was a really bold move. He begins with that black screen and the kind of the stirring of this tone poem. And I'm really excited by the way that Kubrick's work really stands as this experiment. The first experiment really is this notion of absorption. The color black, it's 1968, and he uses this blackness first as a negation, then I think as a way to almost gather all of these black as the absence of color, but it also can be all the colors being temporarily absorbed. So there's a sense of absorption where all the the notes are playing and the, the colors are temporarily absorbed. The monolith becomes a paralinguistic motif, a place where it's almost like it can be many things and it moves through different frames in the film almost the way that when you have a word that doesn't have any explication that can kind of resound in the frame and really gather power in the way that any abstract fetish can. Kubrick's work has an incredible dialogue with modernism, whether you're looking at a Philip Johnson building and all of its effort to be something transcendent and to swear off and actually literally shear off all of the ruffles and the curlicues of the past and have no decoration. So it's really amazing that he's able to use this motif, which actually has ironic and also beautiful uh, way of dialoguing with modernism and its aspirations to shed itself of the past. The next one besides absorption is the way that Kubrick uses void. He's unafraid to literally fill the frame with this space, which could be disconcerting, but actually ends up having this weightless quality so that you actually, as an audience, are experiencing a space as if you are also oscillating and falling through space. And he continues these, um, all these experiments with how to bring us closer to this void. He uses a third of the frame to have that black utterance, that unsayable, that uh, concretized uncertainty in the frame. And what's exciting, too, is that like a painter of abstract modernism, someone who could just paint a surface one color and not be afraid to let you just sit with that color and let it become part of your vision, no one's going to see that color the same way. I think that there's that same kind of experiment going on with Kubrick's work. And so we have these sublime landscapes. He keeps offering us these sublime landscapes and offering us this language. And Hal, I think, is very much a part of that language. And what's amazing is that the abstraction and the uncanniness that Kubrick achieves. It's 1968, and there is so much of an emphasis, whether it be The Planet of the Apes or any of these analogous films, on racial anxiety, a fear of an insurrection by people who used to serve you willingly. And it's really fascinating how science fiction, my undergraduate thesis was about this, about race and futurism, and how there are these anxieties about a formerly non-human subject deciding to become a subject and this tension. What's going to happen? And even now we use the word colonization or recolonization. Even though these words might be outmoded, they do express some early 
earlier anxieties that are about power and role reversal, sleeping with the enemy kind of idea. What's interesting about Kubrick, too, is the way that he allows the present and the past to kind of mingle together. In his later film, Barry Lyndon, where he takes another novel, Thackeray's 1844 novel, Barry Lyndon, about an Irish, very ambitious, but ironic approach to his adventure in life. This is an early version of modern life in which you can travel in a carriage. Much of their time is spent either sitting in leisure and quite bored, or they're listening to music, which is like probably the best thing that they have going is the music, surrounded by this Baroque music. But they also spend a lot of time traveling, sitting and traveling, and kind of lost in their own worlds. And I really see that absorption on the leisure of modern life, whether it's early modern life or the modernism we see in Odyssey, in which a lot of it is spent kind of in a trance of just waiting. In a way, it's kind of a question about, is that progress? So the technology itself is displacing you, allowing for a lot of distance. And there is this point of saturation in Kubrick's work in which you the characters are really almost washed over with their senses, with light, with the, the sense of space, and they get filled with that. And it's this saturation which has a sublime aspect, what ties Kubrick's work to Immanuel Kant, to the idea that if science could turn towards not that which we can see, but almost beyond our sight, beyond our senses, then that science would be an incredible beauty, one that's beyond what's visible to us. And I think that his film pushes us towards that edge and towards that saturation. Thank you. Thank you. So we're now going to have a little bit of a discussion up here, followed by an audience Q&A. So as been said a few times, 2001 A Space Odyssey was made almost half a century ago, and then 2001 is in the past, but we still use it as a signifier for the future. I'll just throw this out as the first question. Why do you think that's so? One of the things that uh, I'm aware, and Rodney, please keep me honest on this one, but was that very few films over the course of film history have the budget and the force to do world building before the film happens. 2001 was one, Minority Report was another, where they had the budget to hire futurists and thinkers to say, okay, what are these things, what will they be like? So that there's a real firm ground to build that world on, build that story. And certainly, I think it's one of the reasons why, I mean, he didn't get everything right in the film, but he got so much right in the film as far as prescience is concerned because he put the effort into it. And I don't blame filmmakers because it's a very expensive thing to do. And what we tend to do is like we've got these spikes where people do great world building, great futurist thinking, and then a lot of films after it sort of use those tropes uh, until we find out that that's out of sync with what we feel, the audience feels, is their future. I mean, Did I do okay? Yes. Okay. I mean, the, the one thing that I'd like to, <clears throat> to add on to that was, having read some of the correspondence between Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick yeah. as to the making of this, in many ways, 2001 is the logical sort of progression after Dr. Strangelove. In Dr. Strangelove, you know, when people read about Kubrick and how incredibly scared he was of the bomb and of mutual destruction between the USSR and the US at that time, he was unbelievably scared, as was a large part of the population. And so 
that movie was a way of dealing with that. But according to some of the accounts that people give, it was in some ways a very limited and unsatisfactory response. Right? It ridiculed powers that be, and in some, in some ways kind of kicked the 60s into high gear by undermining any sort of legitimacy on the part of the powers that be and their fanciful efforts at you know, mutually assured destruction as a way of kind of keeping people from destroying each other. But he was truly scared. When you get to 2001, he, he says this in the correspondence, he was incredibly interested in extraterrestrial life and was veering on some of the ideas that we have even now of space brothers coming down to save us, right? Advanced intelligences that would actually bring some sort of more, oddly enough, you could call it humanitarian, even though they wouldn't be human, but some sort of benevolence to us and keep us from destroying ourselves. Now, what's really interesting is that a lot of people were critiquing that at the time, and we certainly critique that sort of thing now, but that's the point of the film. Okay, 2001 is really four or five films in one. But one of the main points that's being driven is that this encounter with something beyond us, the black monolith, some obvious sort of rendition of alien intelligence, repository, eventually gives humanity something, right? And so that's the point that I, but, but it's interesting that, and I'll repeat the, the thing I was saying before was, it's not that via machines we're able to do this. We have to encounter each of us that void represented by the black monolith in order to actually reach something else, right? But mediation through contained instrumental rationalities like our iPhones, or computers or whatever else that we have now will not get us there. So in essence, the message that he was giving is completely contrary to the sort of optimism that we have now, right? That if we invest, especially here in Silicon Alley, in Silicon Valley, that if we actually go in those directions, that that will be the saving grace, that that will be the Messiah, right? He was saying, no, that's not it. We have to confront the void. Right? And being that, that we are at the Contemporary Jewish Museum, I, I want to speak to that a little bit, which is it is a direct experience of the other in all its radical otherness, its foreignness that actually gets us there, not some mediated version that somehow makes it palatable to us. And when we respond with fear, uh, to the other. That, that's the most dangerous thing that we can do, and we see this again and again through Kubrick's films. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, uh, several of you talked about emotion in 2001. Many people have noted that, uh, you know, the humans in the film seem to be stripped down of, uh, of any real emotions, but there are emotional moments with Bowman and uh, e even, well, especially with <laughs> Bowman. I mean, his, his response when Poole dies, there, there's some emotion there, but he doesn't let emotion take over. Mm -hmm. He has a task. He's got to get back in, so he has to approach that problem very rationally and not freak out from fear or anger or whatever, and that's what really allows him to solve that problem. And there is some question in the film whether Hal has real emotions or not. Is Hal operating out of fear? Is that ultimately why he kills off the other astronauts. And so maybe Hal is a little bit too human, right? If they, they've designed him too well, 
to have the, the human foibles of emotions. Yeah, it seems like the, there's this um, amazing like mirroring that happens in Space Odyssey. To me, watching it, I watched it really late. I didn't actually see it as a kid. I saw it as an adult. So when I watched it and had already lived in San Francisco and seen so much of the technology that's really inspired by this, what in his film, he act, I think Kubrick's actually not reifying the technology. He actually is showing it as something far more complicit and kind of spectral and mysterious, something that does change and reorder your senses and perceptions. So um, I, there's a, that great scene um, in Space Odyssey where the two astronauts are looking actually at the, the iPad-like, uh, or now iPad-like um, screens. They're looking at something that they could view together on one screen, but they're looking at the same thing together. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, while they eat, and you know that, you just know the food is tasteless. It doesn't matter what they're eating, they're watching, and they're watching something about themselves, and it's an interview with Hal about them. And I think that this intermingling, this kind of immersion, showing that there will be a dulling of some senses of the self, because you're connecting to a, you're literally connecting to a mainframe, the ship. But then I think there's some kind of push out to our own time of like, if we are connected in this way, there are new nuances that come up, but there are some numbness, some, some numbnesses that come up. Yes. So I think there's something there about, to me, Hal and the astronauts, they're actually part of the same structure. There isn't actually, I think a pivotal scene is when John goes to take out Hal's memory and it's like these clear, really beautiful, clear, again, like an artist, these clear uh, tabs of memory. And he has to just kind of pick them out. They're not like labeled in the way that you would expect, but suddenly he's, he's letting go of all of this functionality. But it almost seems as if John himself could be letting go of something as well, that he's almost removing his own memory as well, like as he moves that. And I think that that mm. complicity is something that is very compelling in our present moment mm. as well. Just to move the clock of orange a little bit, mm -hmm. do people remember the Ludovico technique? where they keep his eyes open, they inject some sort of, who knows, nefarious injection. And then he starts developing a very strong visceral reaction against any sort of violence or sex. I'm a clinical psychologist, I'm a psychoanalyst, and so I'm in swimming in those worlds. And I get a thing just two weeks ago from the California Board of Psychology, sort of the licensed granting institution for us. <laughs> and on it, the main feature is using this behavioral technique on prisoners, right? Now, they're not quite opening their eyes and injecting them, mm -hmm. but it comes damn close. Mm -hmm. But it's just marketed in a way that speaks exactly to what both the original author of the book and then Kubrick were talking about, which is it takes moral choice out of it. So if you look at the long span of Kubrick films, particularly those that have to do anything with the future, it speaks to what is it that we're willing to give up of our humanity and for what and what are the costs. That is prescient, mm -hmm. that he was doing this so early on. Mm -hmm. It's astounding, the brilliance of the man, to actually catch that part of it. We lose our humanity in ways that seem simplistic but have incredibly profound effects over time. I want to build on something you were yeah. just saying, Fernando, and that is that, I mean, the moral dimension of A Clockwork Orange to me is just tremendous because our identification with Alex, as much as we might not want to, we <laughs> recognize him as a human being right. and, and we have to accept that good and evil really are two sides of the same coin. You can't have good without the possibility of evil because then there is no moral yeah. good if you right. can't do evil. 
We have a question. In Kubrick films, there's uh, very little participation of female actors. Their roles are only there to highlight the violence that are done to women. And most of the actors also are very white. Uh, and most of the, I just wanted you to speak a little bit about that and how if that is highlighting how most of the violence is done by mostly white men and how the violence that they do, if it's the glorification of uh, violent masculinity done by mostly white men, and also what, how can you speak to the violence that they do to women? Okay, that's it. You're right to bring up the, the sort of paucity of uh, women characters in Kubrick's films, but there are some notable exceptions, which I could come back to, but I, I don't think that Kubrick is ever glorifying violence. I think he was horrified by violence, and when we see a film like A Clockwork Orange, we're supposed to be horrified by that violence, and we are, I think. Even, you know, that film is not very graphic by today's standards in its violence, and yet it remains terribly disturbing. And so I think Kubrick is coming from a world that was controlled largely by white men, and he is critiquing the problems of that world caused uh, primarily historically by white men. And he, so he's investigating the problems of masculine aggression, uh, but I don't think he ever intended to glorify that. The phrase that comes up to me very quickly, Jacques Lacan, the, the French psychoanalyst said, when you, because of these kind of theories he was coming up with, people were saying, well, that's quite misogynistic, right? And he says, I'm not prescribing, I'm describing, right? And so I think in those terms, yeah, it is a description of the kind of misogyny, full-on disbasement of women overall. Um, remember, Stanley Kublik um, withdrew Clockwork Orange from Britain, and it was not shown again until way after his death because he was horrified at these supposed copycat murders that were occurring afterwards. I think that's an important point to make as well. I think, I think also there is this really fascinating part of his work that is dealing with that place between language. I think that's what's so, what moves me in looking at his work because I think in a way he uses the types, expected types, and then empties them out of their usual association. So there's a later part of um, the talk that you know we have a little bit limited time, but I kind of compare um, the irrigation of the eye that you have in Space Odyssey, where you have all this light that you're going through this kind of portal, and the, the John experiences that light and the saturation, and comparing it to Clockwork Orange, in which the character of Alex, who has before then been totally, you know, violent, causing violence. Um, and then his eye gets irrigated with imagery, and he has some kind of violation that is happening to him, and it's happening in this very, uh, a woman and a man are doing it t together. And his eyes, which you know, are very, you know, he's very fetching, and he kind of, I think that uh, Kubrick uses male subjects in, in uh, typical uh, woman vi victimization sometimes. Like, he'll actually push the character to have this mutability, which is, it's almost unforgettable. And I think that he works underneath in that realm as well, even though there is that kind of larger structure that he is you know, part of. This question's mostly for the UI guy. 
Um, okay. uh, sorry, sorry, guys. guys. Yeah. Um, so I think the uh, greatest, the Amazon Echo, for example, is closer to a HAL because it can control locks, doors, temperature, lighting. Um, I was curious about how you feel an interface like that that we, that we interface with. We're on the spectrum will be not only in, in like your characteristics of the personality, I think, are very important in interacting with an AI. How do you see it from a movie like Her, where it's full of personality and the technology has disappeared, which is just an earpiece, to like a HAL, where it's a giant ship in a way, and but it's completely bland. Like, where do you think will fall? And that's kind of my question: is like, what UI do you think we'll end up with? How much personality will our AIs have? I think is really it. Um, okay, let me restate the question, which is: how much personality do I think we'll end up with after sort of the evolution of artificial intelligence? When you talk about artificial intelligence, you really have to talk about what category you're talking about. When we look up at how, what we're thinking of is general artificial intelligence, which is the kind of artificial intelligence that's like yours and mine, capable of taking a problem and generalizing it. Um, just like Joshua and War Games can play tic-tac-toe and generalize that at the thermonuclear war. Um, once we have a general AI, one of the things we're going to ask it to do is to create an AI that's better than itself. And it will eventually keep doing that until it comes up with something called the super AI. And the super AI is magnitudes more intelligent than we are. And in fact, there's lots of hypotheses that we don't know what life will be like after that moment. So the transition from general to super is often called the singularity. Put that away. The third category, and it's the one that I'm writing about in my book, um, is about narrow artificial intelligence. Um, and that's the AI that we live with today. We've already mentioned sort of the text replacement in your iPhone is sort of one example of that. Uh, the Roomba is an example of art, a narrow artificial intelligence. The reason I went into that is that you ha the, the answer is different for each one. For a narrow artificial intelligence, personality really gets in the way. That is an intelligence that is meant to help you do something or to do something for you. It's a transactional relationship. A general AI is very much like another person. Its personality will help you predict what it's going to be doing. There is an uncanny valley that we have to be very careful of because they will never quite be human. And so as a designer, I want to make sure that we're on the canny rise, that it feels inhuman so that we know what to expect from it. And for that reason, I would say that no, we don't want to, we, we were going to expect personality for predictive purposes, but not human-like personalities. And lastly, the superintelligence category is, I'm terrified if that thing has a personality. We need it to be good above and beyond all else, um, and personality puts that into question. Okay. It's fascinating how much of AI does, with earlier robot ideas, build off of a slave and then servant and then made um, idea. So it is kind of a limited construct sometimes. And even Siri kind of escapes that because it's kind of more on the how side where it's kind of hard to figure out what's happening. But it's interesting with, some, with Echo, the Echo, like the commercial, the Amazon commercial, the wife is jealous of Echo for a little while and uh, then she kind of recovers. But it's just interesting how the idea of the all-knowing kind of person at your side, the, the, sup the, the supplement, um, it's interesting if AI would turns more towards uh, augmentation of the senses or another way of describing intelligence without that personification kind of hovering underneath in the unconscious of it. I think al the algorithmic and the data-driven, it's exciting to see what will happen if we can free ourselves from that. John Markoff uh, just published a book this year called Machines of Loving Grace. Mm -hmm. um, and the principal tenet of the book is that uh, let's use AI as human augmentation, not human replacement. Mm -hmm. So it's a good reference if you're interested. Awesome. And that is a lovely note to end on. <laughs> <laughs> um, We're all doomed. <laughs> <laughs>